we're going to hear next from one of our go-to guys in the library world, uh, Kenny Cruz from Indiana University School of Law and the School of uh, Library and Information Science. Uh, Kenny, if you'll go, and then we'll have Fred follow you, please, with your thank comments. Do you mind if I use the podium? Please. All right, thank you. I think better on my feet. That way I can run to the door more quickly as well. <laughs> That's right. Uh, thank you very much. What, what a great honor and privilege. Thanks to Jim, thanks to your team of, of people here, and thank, thanks to everybody for making this possible. What a glorious occasion. And, and, and not, now I'm done being optimistic. The, um, a actually not. Um, I, 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 need, I need to be critical, however, which is, which is not in my nature, but sometimes I have to do it. Um, what, one of the problems that we're dealing with, and, and it runs through a lot of our work, and, and Professor Tushnet, I'm, I'm sorry to say it runs, runs through, through your work as well, and we need to struggle with it. And that is we come at these issues in so much in the, this Anglo-Saxon lawyer-like manner where, where everything is supposed to line up and everything is supposed to fit together. And each piece is supposed to make sense for the next piece. And we, but instead, we need to reckon with the fact that it doesn't work that way in real life. Run through some concepts. The Napster case may very well be the closest judicial indicator that we have about some of the things that libraries do. But, but I, I, I will instead say a very different premise from the one that we just heard, and that is that it really isn't about what libraries do. It may be an indicator about the meaning of fair use in some mildly relevant comparable contexts, but it's not about what libraries do. And one of the reasons why is because of the way the court in Napster had to struggle with those four factors of fair use. For example, this bizarre notion of commercial use made by the uploading, downloading for individual use. That's largely a default because the court had no place else to go with that concept. That, that fair use applies to teaching, research, scholarship, news reporting, criticism, commentary, etc. And you know, freebie uploading and downloading just didn't quite fit any of those categories. And, and as Professor Tushnet puts it in her, in her paper, let's see if I get the words correctly, it's something like the difference between the bad pirate and the good something else. I forgot what it was. But, but unfortunately, that you're, you are exactly right. Fortunately, you are exactly right. Unfortunately, that's the way the court was compelled to see it, for better or for worse. And, and so it's not really describing the kind Napster, the Napster case and the Napster phenomenon are not really capturing what we are doing as we share information through networked systems in the name of education, teaching, research, and other pursuits. We are, in fact, fundamentally different in that regard. And that's just the start of what happens when these issues get in front of judges. Uh, that that the, the judge needs to fit the different pieces of the current case into the framework of what has gone before. And the judge is compelled to find a label to put on the purpose. And if these labels don't work, then another label must. Other labels that make no sense as we struggle with some of these issues, labels like systematic, 
systematic copying. It means one thing in the Napster decision. It means yet quite a different thing over in the Texaco decision, which does involve simple, straight research photocopying, albeit in a commercial context. Systematic means something again altogether different in the context of Section 108, where there's a prohibition on libraries engaged in systematic reproduction of material. These are words that have different meaning in different contexts, and we need to be careful about dragging one meaning to, a, to another area of even this small area of copyright law. Similarly, the Chamberlain case, the garage door opener case, is actually, from one perspective, extraordinary good news, breathing a lot of good life into Section 1201, the, D the critical DMCA provision. On the other hand, Professor Tushnet's exactly right. It really doesn't make much sense when you read the statute and when you read what Congress probably intended uh, in enacting 1201. And yet, nevertheless, that's the privilege of being a federal judge. <laughs> filibuster that, I dare you, filibuster that. But instead, we really need to be looking for these little pieces of warning from different cases. We need to be looking for the little pieces of good news. And so now let me step out of being so Anglo-Saxon and really talk more, more a couple of quick points about con uh, concepts rather than details. Concept. I am much unlike many of my, my colleagues who study copyright law. I'm a real optimist about fair use. I firmly believe that as we move into this technological era, DRM, no DRM, contract, no contract, fair use is going to be of growing importance into the future. It may be of different importance, it may be of different application, but it is going to be of growing importance and it's vital for us to find that importance, to grab that importance, preserve that importance and advocate that importance. We have the privilege of pursuing that importance, at least those of us who are part of nonprofit education libraries and archives because Forgive me for not going into the details, but Code Section 504C2 is a critical indicator that says to those of us in th those nonprofit communities that if we do our homework, if we evaluate what we think is fair use, if we apply those factors in a good faith manner, because we don't have a case telling us about our course management tools, about our electronic reserves. We don't have real law on those points. Instead, we're left to fill the void by our own learning and good reasoning, and the law will give us some important protection. We need to exploit that security that the law that Congress is, is giving us. And so, in another conceptual manner, it's the law that we don't have. It's the law that we don't know. What is the law of electronic reserves? Oh, no. Nobody else knows either. It's the law that we don't know that's actually the more important law. Napster isn't really about libraries. It's about something, we can learn some lessons, but it's not really about what we are doing. Instead, as we move into new ventures, we need to come to our own confident, responsible understandings of fair use. And then, my final point, sometimes fair use gets thrown a little bit into a wobbly position by some wonderful developments like Google, 
and its new ventures. Isn't it wonderful? It's, it's terrific. It's the, Google, the Google venture of scanning and uploading is really the Lord God bird of fair use. We just look at it and say, oh, my Lord God, look what they're doing. And that's a, and that's a wonderful thing. It's great because it's them, you know. And, and, and we're all going to reap the benefit. And Google is going to help us test the limits of fair use. And we need to be grateful and supportive for that development. Thank you very much. Such an honor to come after uh, speakers that uh, make me want to say so many other things. <laughs> to agree, to disagree, to, to all do all of those things. Um, let me try to bring some order to the, all the thoughts that, that these great presentations bring to mind. Uh, first, great thanks to Professor Tushnet for, uh, I think, underscoring again what in copyright, at least in what I've been reading uh, of, of copyright commentary in the Academy, uh, seems to have fallen into uh, a lack of popularity or, or uh, sort of an obsolescence, which is the debate about the importance of transformation as a critical element of fair use doctrine. Uh, it's funny, everything old is new again, uh, I'm reminded. As somebody who has had occasion to look deeply at a lot of the commentary surrounding the Betamax decision uh, prior to the Supreme Court's ruling in 1984, uh, it's intriguing to read this paper now about the rising ascendancy of transformation as the pivotal aspect of fair use, because, of course, that's exactly what everyone was saying in 1982. Uh, and in fact, for those who remember, uh, the, in, in the Betamax case, one of the key arguments made throughout the litigation of that case, including in front of the Supreme Court, was that there was a per se rule that non-transformative uses could never be fair. Um, so really, the high watermark of that view of fair use was 1982-83, uh, thankfully, the Supreme Court, I think, uh, knocked that down pretty strongly in their ruling, finding that time shifting for personal, non-commercial, so-called consumptive or non-productive purposes was a fair use. Uh, but I think this paper is exactly right in saying that fight has come back again. Uh, certainly, since Betamax, you're hard-pressed to find a whole lot of other examples of reported decisions recognizing the importance of consumptive, non-transformative uses. Interesting, though, what you will find if you look beyond the reported decisions of the federal courts is the fact that those uses, the non-transformative, so-called consumptive uh, copying, has in fact become enormously important in the real world. In fact, you will see, I mean, I, it's funny that in reading this paper, uh, I, it sort of brought together a lot of ideas that I had written in a paper that I presented at the Fordham Conference last month. Why is it that American copyright law, fair use in particular, is not talking about, the, certainly the reported decisions don't talk about, the vast majority of copies which must depend on fair use itself? All of the time-shifting technology, starting with the VCR and more recently the TiVo, all of the new portable digital music and now increasingly portable digital video devices, there are literally billions of copies being made, which under American law can only be excused, I would suggest, 
uh, under fair use. And yet, no reported decisions about any of those. However, all of those are non-transformative uses, and I am relatively confident that if those uses were brought to the courts, here I will agree with Professor Cruz, the reality is I don't think the courts would treat the typical TiVo owner as equivalent to the typical Napster user. I just don't think, I would love, I'm looking for that case. <laughs> I had that case two years ago in the Replay TV case. Sadly, the company went bankrupt before we could get to the substantive issues. But those are the cases that I think are very important to bring. So uh, to, to try to move to the more, the action issue, which I know is technically not on our agenda until tomorrow, let me try to jump the gun a bit and give two action items that Professor Tushnet's paper brought to my mind. Uh, and here I hope to try to bolster her uh, uh, pessimism on, on this front. Number one, she's exactly right that we need to develop a rhetoric that justifies, not only justifies, but in fact celebrates non-transformative uses as co-equal citizens in the first, in the, excuse me, in the fair use discussion. Right? I think uh, unfortunately, consumptive uses have become second-class citizens in the fair use debate. And as her paper very brilliantly points out, for the library community, many of the uses that you employ or, or must have are so-called consumptive or non-transformative uses. When the researcher makes the photocopy of the article, which will ultimately yield some new scholarship, that copy being made to take back to the office there's nothing transformative about that copy. It's no different than the copy made by the TiVo owner. Perhaps its purpose can be called educational, but I would argue that not at all clear to me. And uh, Professor Veithayanathan will, will show, I always love using SIVA as the example. A media studies professor would say, having TiVo to be able to watch current television is no less a critical educational part of his job than it is for a historian to have a copy of an article. So I think we need to, to find the rhetoric that, that tells us that consumptive uses are absolutely co-equal as fair uses. I would suggest one important place to begin, and this was the topic of the paper that I wrote that I'd be happy to, to share with folks, is to talk about the importance of consumptive, so-called consumptive uses for innovation. I would argue that the explosion of innovative new digital and, frankly, even pre-digital technologies that we've seen in the last 20 years have been founded almost entirely on the ability to make personal, non-commercial, non-transformative copies. Were that not part of our fair use tradition, we would not have the personal computer, the iPod, the TiVo, any of these technologies. These technologies are possible and, in fact, the incentives to build the technologies that the innovators were responding to, those incentives were importantly grounded in fair use. Fair use, non-transformative fair use, provides an incredibly important engine, a fertilizer, if you will, a, a, a pot of gold that creates incentives that have driven an incredible amount of technological innovation, which, ironically enough, as we've seen for 20-odd years, have redounded in almost every case to the benefit of copyright owners themselves in the long run. So I think that's one important way we can try to bring that rhetoric, uh, to, to put a foundation under those first two categories that Professor Tushnet mentioned, the categories of access, the categories of sharing, 
and put them on equal footing with the category of transformation. Um, the second thing, and here I will embrace uh, Professor Cruz's proposal, that I think we really should look at making some law. I agree with him. I'm very optimistic. Of course, I'm a litigator. I'm a public interest litigator. My job is to go out there and make that law. But I think he's exactly right. These new technologies, I'm less afraid. I mean, I'm sort of caught in the middle between the two perspectives we've heard. On the one hand, I am very much afraid, as I think Professor Tushna's paper suggests, that bad law made in cases like Napster will essentially uh, feed back and end up influencing the law for good uses that I think we would all agree ought to be permitted. Uh, in that regard, I'm slightly less optimistic than uh, Professor Cruz, who suggests that, well, let's be cautious before we drag concepts developed in one set of facts over into new contexts. For better or for worse, my job as a litigator is to drag concepts from one <laughs> context over to another. The, the point is simply that the, context, the concepts I'm trying to drag are just the opposite ones that my opposing counsel are trying to drag. So I think we're stuck trying to drag those concepts. But I do think that new technologies and new uses for technologies give us the opportunity to make that law. And I would urge, and I'll say this again tomorrow, I would urge the library communities not to shrink from that. Uh, you think, and certainly Miriam and others will tell you how hard it is to go to Capitol Hill to get the kinds of exceptions and room you need to do your work. I'd propose you'll actually have an easier time getting that from federal courts who see at, on the other side of the dock a university, a library, a nonprofit, an educational institution. I suggest that you'll have a better hearing in the right case with the right facts then you will get in front of the relevant judiciary subcommittee in either House of Congress. So I would suggest that you not shrink from it. And again, the professor was very good about pointing out the library communities have certain uh, uh, limitations on remedies that the rest of my poor clients <laughs> don't have. Uh, and I would suggest now is the time for some courage. Choose some of the activities for which you think no court could possibly say this is unlawful. Find some factual context. It can sometimes, it's always hard, my job is to find standing, right? Usually the copyright owners won't be foolish enough to put you in a lawsuit about something that is sort of an unassailable use, but you'll be surprised. If you look, <laughs> you'll find a copyright owner who is willing to overreach in almost any context you can imagine. And my goal, certainly as litigators, to find that overreacher and say, aha, I've now got standing to drag you into court. And once I can do that, I think you have an opportunity. He's right. Google is already doing this. Many other, the Internet Archive is doing this. There are many other very powerful new uses who are, one way or another, are going to drag copyright owners into court and try to make new law. I would urge the libraries not to be left out of that process. That's where I think I'm quite optimistic. And I want to thank Fred for what I would consider to be a public commitment to defend us. Amen. <laughs> Amen. You, you know I'm on, absolutely. What do they pay me for after all? <laughs> thank you. Uh, good. So we have a good at least 20 minutes, if not maybe even a few more minutes to uh, talk a little bit. So 
Hi, I'm Ann Ann Barto from the University of South Carolina School of Law. Um, I, as an educator, am deeply critical of both the Kinkos and the Texaco cases. Uh, one thing I actually do sometimes, South Carolina is rather sparse on support staff, so I generally do make my own photocopies, and I love to stand at the machine going, multiple copies for classroom use, baby. Uh, use my fair use, because under Kinkos, I still seem to have the right. Our basic books challenges that in dicta, but at least under Kinkos, as I read Kinkos, when I'm making the copies, that's okay. Uh, Texaco, God forbid I go to work for Texaco, um, although I probably have more support staff, um, <laughs> uh, doesn't really have that out, right? There's no real, the CCC, the Copyright Clearance Center, was pretty much, right, con contrived by this whole case. And my question, I haven't looked at it lately, but I spent a lot of time butting my head against the wall trying to figure out what is going on with the Copyright Clearance Center, trying to figure out what the rates are, how many periodicals and what those periodicals are. I tried to sign up and they wouldn't even tell me, like you had to actually sign up and subscribe and become an affiliate before they even tell you what they offered you. Uh, who are their licensees? Um, how much money is coming, being generated? How much money is getting to publishers? How much of that money is getting to the authors? Are we incentivizing new works? I mean, I think there's a lot of information that we're sort of owed in exchange for, you know, having the system forced on us. And I, I guess I just wonder if, if the panelists or anybody in the room had some sense, because to me, that could be a model like, uh, you know, Rebecca talked about Napster that could be very dangerous for libraries depending on how it all, you know, is, this seen, is it like the Borg, resistance is futile and we're all going to have to kind of, because that's the way they approach people. I mean, they do. When they approach, they say, you subscribe to this journal, resistance is futile, we'll, we'll, we'll pay off one of your disgruntled employees to prove to us that copying is being made, and they're, they're actually doing this stuff. So I just kind of wondered if anyone had thoughts or input. Um, I did actually poke around the CCC website not too long ago. Um, and I thought somewhat more information was available, certainly nothing on how much money was going where. Uh, there's no way they were going to tell anybody that. Um, but they did seem to have at least some of the per page rates up. Um, maybe they, the rates would be different if I signed up and maybe I'd get a discount. I mean, the, you know, the attractive part about these licensing schemes is I, mean, I was looking at the um, that books, books on tape. I mean, if a library is willing to sign up for the long term, they, you can get – uh, pretty good prices and a pretty good regular supply. So uh, the, there are potential gains from everybody, at least if you think you'll be able to keep paying, right? At least if you think your budget will be stable, um, right? And, and that's, it, it, it's not as if um, these proposals are all horrible, right? They couldn't sell them just with we'll sue you, right? That's the lessons of, uh, of the iTunes store. They sell it with, uh, well, we could sue you or we could give you this really attractive you know, option, right, which will give you new publications you never had in the first place. Right? So I don't, uh, I don't know how to find out more. I mean, it will probably take an antitrust suit uh, to, to find out more about the internal work. Let not the perfect be the enemy of the good. <laughs> uh, I agree. As with, in fact, almost any collecting society, almost anywhere on the planet, there are problems. But I would urge you not to uh, let your uh, uh, skepticism about collecting societies blind you to the considerable advantages that collecting societies offer to users over pure exclusive rights administered by publishers who have purely uh, uh, you know, motives that are sometimes completely unrelated to access. So let me say just for a moment here, if you look in the realm of music, for example, 
you are much better off in a world negotiating with BMI or ASCAP than you are in a world negotiating with the major labels. Um, because collecting societies to their credit, when they are mature and functioning, I think, sensibly in a marketplace, uh, are, have their licensing entities. They make their money by encouraging as much use by as many paying customers as possible. Now, of course, we'd prefer not to be paying customers at all. We'd prefer to have use without the need to pay. But generally, collecting societies try hard to make it as easy for as many users to have access as possible because that's how they maximize their bottom line. Whereas publishers and distributors have a very different set of incentives. And there's often circumstances where maximizing access is not in the interest of the person whose, in whose primary business is selling physical tangible copies or things of that kind. So collecting societies, I think, offer a lot of hope for the future, uh, not a perfect outcome, but an outcome that I think could be much better. They aggregate rights. They are generally in favor. They have an economic reason to be in favor of broad access um, as compared to certain large cartel-like publisher uh, groups. I think this is not so bad. And, and, and let me add something. I agree with all of this this conversation. And and then let me let me add another component to it, and that is that we're talking about talking about and the way you set it up, Anne, was is a, is a system. You've got inputs that go into the copyright clearance center. They're processes and outputs. Let's talk about the inputs for a second. We are the inputs. We are the ones writing that material. Those of us in, in academia, at least the stuff that you and I are likely talking about. Those of you out in TV land, you're the ones <laughs> who are creating this stuff and, and making it possible for the publishers to control. And there are a number of initiatives. I'm here with some folks from the, the Zvola group and, and there's Project Romeo and there are a number of other organizations that are trying to encourage those of us who write this content to have smarter contracts with our publishers so that the publishers get what they need to be effective publishers and we retain what we need to be effective communicators of our own intellectual content and make it available as broadly as possible. And just one last point on that. And it's critical that you have competition to make that work. Right? And again, in the music context, you see we have three performing rights organizations in the United States. They compete for artists. In other words, they compete for the inputs. Mm -hmm. And as a result, there is room there for one to say, wait a minute, you don't like the contract terms you're getting from ASCAP? I can give you a better deal. You don't like the lack of transparency? I can give you a better deal. You don't like that their uh, overhead and administrative costs is 12%? I can do it for 10 Right? I mean, that is, I think in some ways, the most reliable uh, uh, way to get at some of the issues you're talking about. Sam. Yeah, I'm Sam Trasso from the University of Western Ontario. I want to follow up on the question of course reserves and particularly electronic reserves. Because if you're talking about setting up a good lawsuit that we can win with attractive party defendants and unattractive party plaintiffs, I think that's where we want to go. Um, everybody knows about Kinko's and Princeton and Texaco. And, and the myth from these cases, of course, is you're not supposed to make course packs because uh, it's not going to be fair dealing. These were, these, were all public, these were not public universities. These were not libraries. These were all profit-making entities. Now, I'd like to know a little bit more about what's going on at the University of California, and I'm hoping that some of the panelists will be able to um, 
help me with that. Um, it seems as if there is a potential situation happening there, and you, you, it seems as if you've got a university that is willing to stand up to the situation. Now, I just want to remind people that the, the, the Law Society of Upper Canada, when they were running their copy service in their library, were under incredible pressure not to do it because you're going to get sued. And this you're going to get sued stuff usually makes people peel off. Now, it just so happened that the publishers picked a very bad defendant in this case. It was the Law Society of Upper Canada, which is like the State Bar of Ontario in, in American terms. And now, maybe a good defendant. It was, right, they, they, were great, they were a great defendant from our point of view because they said, you want to file a lawsuit against us? We, we know what lawsuits are. We're not scared of lawsuits. File a lawsuit against us. We've got lawyers. We're not going to say, oh, we're going to get sued and, uh, and stop doing the uh, copying. And as a result of their willingness to pursue this, Canada now has some really excellent new doctrine because a library was willing to say, we have got a really legitimate public access policy, and the Supreme Court was very impressed with the access policy that said, we're not going to make excessive copies. If it's, a, if it's a questionable order, a librarian's going to look at it. That was really important. But like, what's going on with the Berkeley situation at San, at San Diego? Is this a possible situation where we can make some doctrine? And in terms of action items, let's just sort of try to develop an agreement as a library community that we're going to be aggressive in, in, terms, in terms of this stuff. I don't understand why if a university library has a license to a particular run of journals, we have to be paying royalties to have the permission to, uh, to use it again if you want to do course packs. <laughs> would one of the panelists like to speak to that? And, and also, I, I would, if we, if we need amplification on this, I would also call on Georgia Harper, who has been extraordinarily helpful with helping with an e-reserve policy for all of the library associations, maybe to put in your more than two cents worth as well. Let's hear from the panel first. Okay. <laughs> Does anybody want to talk about the University of California situation? Does everybody, everybody been hearing about uh, that issue? There's been a, a question or uh, I guess a bit of a challenge from uh, the publishers about the electronic reserves policy of the University of California. From what I have read, um, and I can only say from news reports that I have read, uh, UC certainly feels that it is, it is certainly doing everything correctly, properly, that it's, it is in no way uh, infringing copyright in its policies. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to know a little more about those facts. I just am not, I mean, is they have rights in the library to access material? I mean, how, uh, well, what's the argument? I, I, I gather no, nobody in the room has any particular detailed insights about the structure and policy and position of UC San Diego about what its reserves. Anybody ready to speak to those details? I, I don't think so. So, so just in broad general strokes, the, the question of electronic reserves is a question of fair use. And you can look around the country, look at the electronic reserves resources that, that Jeff Rosedale has on, on the internet, and you'll find a hundred different policies around the country, a hundred different mm -hmm. interpretations of fair use. And that's a good thing. That's a real good thing. Uh, was Martha Stewart in the room? The, the, that it's, it's, it's a real good thing that, that we have these because it's a chance for us to explore and experiment and learn from one another. 
And, and, and I, I'll tell you that the UC, University of California, a public institution, has two enormous advantages going into this. One is what I mentioned, the, uh, uh, some relief on some of the remedies that gives them some room to feel like they can experiment. The other is this, this peculiar American thing called the Constitution. And the 11th Amendment to the Constitution gives some immunity in federal court for monetary liabilities, not complete immunity. And my bottom line analysis of that is that it doesn't take you completely off the hook, but what it does is it should drive your thinking back to the core question. What's the right thing to do as a responsible citizen who lives in a world with other people and lives in a world with the law. How do we make a responsible interpretation of fair use, apply it to our given facts? How do we be confident, get to our comfort level, and move ahead? And we're all going to answer those questions differently. And my response to that is, hallelujah, be different. And go ahead and don't worry if the person next to you is more lenient or more strict. Don't worry. Do what you conclude is proper for you, your needs, your institution, and your way of looking at the law and your own responsibility in that world of law. I, I echo all of that, and don't be afraid to go to court um, because there are, there is, it's not all terror there. Uh, yeah, I had forgotten until... You just started talking. I said, sovereign immunity. They can't touch you. <laughs> now, Columbia's in trouble, right? Yes, yes, right. yes. My alma mater, Stanford, <laughs> this is all the question. But that's the thing is you can, there, different institutions have different advantages to test these questions. And you have to test it. I mean, whether you like it or not, you're an activist on these issues just like I am. You are responsible and engaged in making the law, not simply reading it and applying, because as has been pointed out here on all of these new questions, we don't know what the law is, and that's, a good, that's an opportunity, not a tragedy. Um, and so, you know, when I think about course packs, I'm always reminded, I mean, I can't speak for every discipline, but certainly in the law school, I don't understand why course packs exist in law schools. It seems to me every student has free Westlaw and Lexis access. Uh, your course pack could be something as simple as a list of URLs uh, that you give to every student. The students all have printers. They all have computers. They all have free and licensed and access Westlaw to the underlying works. Westlaw and Lexus will pay for that printer. They That's right. They pay for the replacement cartridge. They pay for the paper. That's right. If Exactly. They do. They so do. But the key, right, exactly. <laughs> but the key, as, as Sam pointed out, the key is you shouldn't then also have to pay again when you buy those course packs for $150 for you know half the semester. So uh, I think there is, again, in some ways, this combination of new technologies allows new uses that ought to be uh, ought to be actively encouraged. You know, and people want to print. Let them print on Lexus's paper. <laughs> Rebecca, do you do you want to add any? Well, um, I, I think this is all great, but he, here's the, here's the thing I worry about, and this uh, may be because uh, I'm uh, an enormous popular culture fan. I agree. Um, the course pack people, electronic reserves people, have good cases. They'd certainly be the ones I'd want to take to court. Um, do you want to defend Harry Potter uh, on a hundred iPod shuffles? 
that the library paid $20 for but and is now distributing 100 copies at the same time? But that's the key. You're going to get stuck in a case one way or another. So pick those battles. Be aggressive about picking the good battles first because they'll, they'll find the library with the 100 Harry Potters. And if you haven't built some case law before that, you'll lose there and then that will hurt you on your course packs. Uh, Go the other way. You know, that, that might be true. I, just, I can't convince myself that winning on the course packs will actually help you with Harry, Harry Potter. Uh, or think, uh, Bruce Springsteen's new album, right? I mean, it, 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 the closer you get to things that look like uh, standard consumer products. Um, so, you know, uh, the library downloads Devils and Dust and lends it out. Right? That's actually, lots of libraries do lend out CDs. And yet, um, you can see how that uh, would seem to substitute for a vibrant consumer market in a way that the, 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 sort of long tail of library lending, a lot of that does not substitute for re uh, really hot purchases right now, right? And I, I agree, courts are going to try and find distinctions so that they will get at least some libraries off the hook. Uh, but I'm, af I'm afraid of how that will happen and also what it will end up saying about, you know, good culture versus bad culture. That is, um, well, you guys are good because you're law students and you're studying law. And, you know, obviously we know that's good, but people who are just listening to music, well, they're, they're just, you know, the standard proletarian idiots. And I, I, I don't like the way that go argument goes either. Uh, Georgia, before we leave this topic, would you like to add anything? Well, I, I just actually have a question, really. It's, it expresses my concern about, let's say, the UC uh, San Diego being the test case. Um, I, the thing that bothers me is I'm not sure that the fact that they're a nonprofit state institution, which would help them on the first fair use factor, would outweigh the likelihood that a court would smash them to death on the fourth factor since there is this license available, since the CCC exists, as Anne described mm -hmm. it. Um, so that, you know, that, I wonder what you think, especially being a litigator, and, and Kenny is you as well. That's what concerns me the most about that test case. Let's make some law. <laughs> right? I mean, they have certain remedial advantages that no other uh, set of users does. Uh, so the downside is considerably ameliorated there vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, you know, a private institution or a, a private user. Uh, and I, I think this notion that I agree it's unfortunate in the wake of the, the, the Texaco case and the, the Princeton, the basic books case, uh, we're already sliding pretty far down that hill. But if you don't, I mean, let's, let me put it to you this way. Would you rather go to Congress in front of the House subcommittee and ask them for uh, the kind of use? I mean, I'd rather take my chances in court on that fourth factor. And it's not unassailable. There's been plenty of uh, commentary that has said, isn't it crazy that the circularity of the fourth factor has applied in these cases? In fact, in the Sixth Circuit, the original three-judge panel said, that's ludicrous. And it wasn't until they went on Bach that they got that turned around over the dissent of the original uh, uh, panel as well as several other judges. So I would not give up on this uh, uh, too quickly. I think that's the only place you're going to get ground back. I don't see a whole lot of uh, hope about getting the ground back in, in Congress. So let's, let's give it a try. You know, nothing ventured. <laughs>
Okay, I think we have time for one more question. Uh, June? Sorry, I, I may just be a little slow on the uptake here, but I missed the part about what's the basis for the 100 copies of Harry Potter? Oh, um, this is actually, uh, a, there's a library in, in New York State, actually, uh, that's lending out the iPod Shuffle with audiobooks downloaded from the iTunes Store. Um, and as, as if, if you use the iTunes Store and have, for some unknown reason, read the limits, it turns out you can put, uh, as many, you can use as many devices as you want per authorized download. So you pay once and you can put it on uh, essentially as many devices as you can pay for. So what the library has done is it's bought itself, I think about 20 iPod shuffles and now it buys an audiobook and puts it on the shuffle and lends the shuffle out. So there's nothing in violation of the license about that? Well, uh, if you read the license, it does suggest that uh, perhaps the library should not be doing that. Well, it, the, big, the big problem here is they're putting it on iPod Shuffle, so you're reading the chapters in random order. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, so nobody wants it anyway, right? Most Harry Potter fans could probably work through that. <laughs> the, the, and and, and, and this, this, this raises, though, a good general point, and, and that is that if, it's, if you're talking about a legitimate interpretation of license terms and you legitimately, honestly conclude that we really believe the license says I can put this on 20 iPods, well then, great. More power to you. But if we're back to no license, let's talk pure law, let's talk fair use, and we're talking about buying the, the audio discs of Harry Potter and duping that onto a large number of iPods, um, you know, as, as a great advocate of fair use, I'm probably going to look at that and say, I, I, this is beyond my comfort zone. I, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure I want you to do this. I'm not sure that, I, that, that this is within fair use. But what if you change the hypo such yeah, that you tell the library, so long as you purchase one copy of the CD for each iPod on which you intend to lend? Because... Frankly, you know, I've, I got a note, ironically, from a librarian in New Jersey. Just, uh, in fact, I'm going to send him your paper because it was so perfectly apropos, asking just last week this very question, saying, "Is there any way we can loan out eBooks on iPod shuffles because we have the problem of loss and damage and wear and tear to the original copies? Whereas, you know, the shuffle is either it's either there and it works or it's not, and we can have the patron give us a deposit for that." But we can't really punish the patron just for sort of general wear and tear on the original. So if I were to change that and say buy one copy for each shuffle, right. that's a case I'd want to take. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 of course, whether it's fair use depends upon a number of other variables, of course. But it looks good. But on that, at least on that fourth factor, the effect on the market... I think I think no you've more. softened the blow dramatically. Well, uh, okay. Uh, I, I mean, I think, I think, uh, uh, no, those, those are excellent points. And actually, one of the things that I thought about in the paper is, you know, the library that does buy the CD and, and rips to MP3. I think again, I actually don't think with the shuffle there's a big risk of that leaking um, because of the difficulty of getting a file from the shuffle onto an unauthorized computer. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there are people out there who could do it, but to my knowledge, nobody has done it. All the all the hacks that I know require an authorized computer, which you wouldn't have if you borrowed your shuffle from the library. Um, but the uh, I poked around 
as I said, a bunch on the Books on Tape um, website to figure out sort of what, what's the difference in the consumer site and the library site. Um, and one of the things is they, they have a flourishing market for replacements. I mean, you pay, uh, as part of your subscription, you pay a fee, and they send you a replacement CD when it's fine. So, yes, you're, take, you're not taking as much money, but you're still taking money. And uh, I'm not sure at what point a court is going to say, well, you know, you're just not entitled to that market. Well, I, there are two separate issues you've raised there that I, I want to disaggregate. One is the leakage problem. And on that, I'm happy to take that oh, case yeah, because I, I certainly the uh, iPod leaks no more than the ability to lend the actual physical unencrypted unprotected CD, which I maintain the library plainly has the right to do. And if that's the case, it goes, hallelujah, I'd love, okay, I, I can win that case. On the question of does it nevertheless harm the fourth factor because of this replacement market, again, I, it's hard for me to conceive of a better set of facts in which to undermine this notion that licensing automatically disqualifies fair use than that precise case. Um, that, because, that in essence, the physical wear and tear on the product is for all time. No one can take technical steps to eliminate or ameliorate physical wear and tear because to do so would undermine the market for replacements that the copyright owner already licenses, that's the case I want. Well, I hope you get it. <laughs> La always Lolly. looking, always looking. Lolly Gassaway has a, a short quick question. Okay, very you, quick. You keep talking do. about um, the issue about whether licensing trumps the Copyright Act or vice versa. Those of us in libraries deal with 108F4, which says that the license agreement trumps the Copyright Act. And I don't, I mean, I agree with you generally about the rest of the act, but I don't know how we can say that it trumps Section 108 because the statute itself says it does not. You that, decide it, Kenny? Oh, you know, I have it memorized. That, Nothing affects the right of fair use or any license agreement does. which the library executed at the time it acquired a work in its collection. Lolly has just raised... And no more. That is not a little question. <laughs> that is a really big one, and we can't answer it right now, or Jim's going to get really mad at me, and we're going to miss our chance to have lunch. But we should continue this discussion, but maybe over lunch. Um, Jim, thank you very much. As we were sitting here this morning, uh, copyright history was being made. Uh, Gigi Song from Public Knowledge uh, has um, important information to share with us. I've asked her to tell us, one, what happened while we sit here, sat here, and two, why it is important to us. She will assuredly be done by 12.15, at which time I will ask you to go out and have a great lunch. Um, given the fact that we're starting a little bit later, uh, we'll reconvene at 1.15, uh, and move to our, our really excellent uh, uh, panel. So please, after lunch, try to be back here at 1.15 so that we can get started. Gigi, good news. So, it's, it, so um, I'm going to have a smile on my face the whole rest of this weekend, and, and I apologize for shuffling and coming in and out, but thanks to the library community, our friends at EFF, our friends in Consumers Union and Consumer Federation of America, we have a huge victory in the case of American Library Association versus FCC, struck down the broadcast flag regulations, which as, I mean, 
I mean, struck them down. It's a slam dunk. I have a couple extra pages and uh, uh, copies, and I'll also, I'm also happy to send it uh, to people uh, electronically if they want. As Fred mentioned uh, yesterday, without getting into the details, a broadcast flag is a copy protection mechanism that prevents lawful uses of broadcasts, uh, digital broadcast uh, television, including the sending of any parts of those, uh, those videos over the Internet. And as some of you may have known, there was actually a preliminary decision about a month ago questioning the right of the library and consumer groups to bring this case, the so-called standing. And uh, I have to say, the library community particularly really stepped up, and, and I have to thank Miriam and Prue Adler particularly because the court, the court only has to have, find that one organization has standing. All right, and they found to, for all the rest of us to have standing and move forward. And really, at the 11th hour, Prue found this woman, Peggy Hoon, at NC State, and she is the person that they discuss. Okay, NC State Library is the person that they, is the group that they discuss here. They found that she would be harmed by the broadcast flag regulation, or they would be harmed by the broadcast flag flag regulation and said that ARL has standing, and therefore the rest of us have standing. So this is a double header. Because getting into the courthouse is oftentimes very, very hard for libraries and educators. And unfortunately, nobody in the consumer electronics or technology community had the guts to, to join this case with us. So it, it, is a, it is a double win to the extent that we won on the merits, we won on standing, and, and everybody should just thank themselves. There are a lot of people in this room, Doug, Mary Minow, a lot of people who responded to our call for people to submit affidavits. We submitted 13 affidavits, and, uh, and we came through. So I'm just delighted, and I'm happy to talk about it. But let's go eat, and we have a little press conference that we're doing in a few minutes. So.